Good morning, and I'd like to start by thanking the University of Nebraska for the invitation to be uh, at this conference, and I would like also to thank uh, Roberto, Jim, Ken, and Patricio for their hospitality. Um, Roberto and Ruth pointed out the importance of context and scales. The context of my paper is rain-fed agriculture in high-tech production systems, and the scales we're going to talk today are the crop and the cropping system. I'll start with a broad view of uh, sustainability, and I will ask the question about our role as researchers in the context of sustainability, and I will ask how do we make sure that our work is relevant, that the investment that's used in our research makes a difference in the real world. Then I'll narrow the focus of the paper, and we'll be talking about yield at the system level. This means how crops are organized in space and time, and yield at the crop level. Resources from the viewpoint of the, the physiology of the crop are CO2 and radiation, water and nutrients. And there's an obvious difference, but it's very important. Today's rainfall can be used next week. It can be stored with a certain efficiency. But the sun energy that's not used today uh, is lost forever. That's a, a fundamental aspect of uh, uh, technology and food production. How do we harness that sunlight? Uh, we'll be looking at two cropping systems. Um, in, in the southeastern Pampas, it's a fertile soil with 900 to 700 millimeters of rainfall per year and um, fairly uniform distribution of rainfall through the, through the seasons, slight bias to summer rainfall. And in uh, southeastern Australia, it's uh, soil with low fertility, three to 500 millimeters of rainfall per year with a strong seasonality. 65% of rainfall is during the um, autumn to spring growing season uh, for cereals. And that means uh, it's a typical Mediterranean environment. The menu of choices for, for, for growers is very limited. Wheat is the main crop, and everything else is, everything else is around wheat. In that type of country, you can ask a grower, what's your expectation of yield for this year? And they will answer. You don't need to, to tell them what crop you're talking about. They will assume it's wheat. Um, a, a production system is sustainable if it's profitable, if it meets the environmental and social expectations. And we add a fourth dimension there of safety of food. Um, think, for example, of mad cow disease, 25 years from the first symptoms to uh, hopefully eradication, 160 people die in the UK, and there's a lingering effect on that. Or the more recent scare with the Spanish cucumbers, when by the time that the source of food poisoning was identified, the, the Spanish growers had to foot a big bill. We split the system in these four components, but the reality is they are closely related. Any disturbance in, in any of these, uh, the sites of this box will have implications for the others. For example, um, Jim Ballard was well ahead of his time when he was writing about climate change uh, in the 60s, but he used climate change to make this powerful connection between landscape and identity. 
we are what we are for many reasons, but one of them is how we relate to the landscape. So a disturbance in the landscape will have that type of consequences, both individually and, and for communities. Australia is just recovering from one of the worst droughts on record, and um, the legacy of that drought is, of course, financial problems, but there is also uh, family breakdown and mental illness. It's not all negative. Let's see some positive aspects of uh, warming. Our identity is also strongly shaped by our favorite drink. People who drink wine are very different to people who drink spirits or wine or, or beer. And thanks to warming over the last few decades, the Danish are dreaming that they're becoming a bit more like France or Italy. And, uh, <clears throat> and further north, the Finnish are dreaming they're becoming a bit more like Denmark. 60 degrees latitude is the upper limit for agriculture. In that environment, the Finnish grower right now has that window to grow a crop. In a few decades, they will be like Denmark. Food production is expected to double just from the expansion of that window. On top of that, we need to account for uh, technology. I bring this point early to my paper because it's very critical, this idea. We have a window, we, and we need to grow crops, and we need to make the most of it. Um, and that applies not only at high latitudes, where it's obvious, but also in uh, mid-latitude environments, and I will show that very shortly. So this is a fundamental concept which remains relevant. There is a window, and our technology needs to be able to get the, high, the highest proportion of that time with a green canopy able to capture light to produce food. So we can go back now to this question of our role as researchers in, in the context of sustainability. Our role is fourfold. We provide elements of science, technology, education, and policy. And the, the next question is how we make sure that our work is relevant. It makes a difference. And, um, I don't have an answer that fits everything and everywhere, but I show you my approach from the perspective of a crop scientist. First, recognizing that improvement in production has two sources, better agronomy and better varieties. And we can make explicit the third one, which is the interaction. For example, um, the Green Revolution, it's not just better varieties in, in a, in, in a in a production system with higher uh, technology, semi-dwarf genes were useless until there was the, the technology to, to control uh, grass uh, weeds. So it's often that synergy that's very important. And when, when people try to do the partitioning of what proportion of yield improvement is breeding and agronomy, the breeders uh, take the synergy to their side of the equation and the agronomists to their own, but this, this synergy is very important. So recognizing this, for those of us working on subsidiary sciences, and I say crop physiology is a subsidiary science, but entomology, soil science, climatology, pathology, they are all removed from production one or two steps. So for us to be relevant, what we need working from these uh, disciplines is to engage with agronomy with breeding of both. And that's what we do in, uh, in our place. This is, to flesh this out, this is our current research portfolio. We work on 
on the physiology of wheat, field peas, chickpeas, and grapevines. We're looking at water stress and heat stress, but in all the projects, we do have a component of breeding or agronomy of both. So let's now narrow the focus of, um, of this yield resources um, relationship. I will start with an overview of the evolution of crop yield. This is important because there are at least two trade-offs that are relevant for us today. Before being growers, we were animals that uh, trying to chase food and, and the survival of, of uh, any animal depends on that ratio. How much energy you get from your food relative to the energy spent in chasing that food. And many adaptations, many of uh, adaptations both in terms of phys physiology and behavior can be explained by this uh, ratio. So our craving for chocolate and our capacity to store fat is coming from that. Then in the Neolithic, we started to grow crops for the grower. Um, in those days, land was unlimited. Weeds were a nightmare, probably. And, um, and the key was to use an amount of grain for two uh, uses. One is to feed the family during winter and to keep some seed for the next crop. That led to the, this early definition of yield, grain per grain, the capacity of a plant to multiply grain. So when you eat uh, corn from a cob, you could see there are 300 grains or so from a single grain. That's the huge capacity of the plant to multiply grain. And um, that's the definition of yield you find in the Bible. And that's been the definition of yield for most of the history of agriculture. And the consequence of that is the selection of plants that are tall, aggressive, many branches, many tillers, large heads, and small grain. It's only very recently, when land started to be in short supply, that we shift to this uh, contemporary definition of yield. And the consequence of shifting from grain per grain to kilos per hectare sorry, is the trade-off between the competitive plant and the communal plants. And I will show evidence for this and show that this is still relevant. Where are we heading? We're heading to a measure of yield where the time dimension is made explicit. In, in many systems, growers are not motivated to get a high yield for a single crop, but to feed many crops per unit time. And that means the next trade-off between the yield of an individual crop and the yield of the system. So I will show evidence and, and discuss a little bit the, these two trade-offs. This is the time trend of yield for a set of varieties representing 50 years of breeding in Australia. So this is a steady increase in yield. And as a physiologist, I'm asking, or my interest is, what are the changes in the phenotype? What did breeders change in the, in the plants and the crop to, to account for this increase in yield? They changed many things. One of them is the competitive ability of the plant. So the modern plant is a lot less competitive. And there are a number of implications for this. You cannot select for yield growing an isolated plant in a pot. And, um, and modern varieties are more reliant on good weed management. So that's what Colin Donald showed the, 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 the communal plant. 
high yield per crop goes against high yield per plant. And this is uh, the second trade-off. This is uh, Dennis Egli's um, account of the change in the rate of improvement in soybean yield in systems where uh, up there the, is, is the highest rate of improvement in, in uh, soybean yield in environments or conditions where growers focus on a single crop. But down there, at, at, the, at the high level of uh, double cropping, the progress in, in the yield of soybean is much less. So the grower there is not interested so much in a good soybean crop, but is prepared to sacrifice soybean yield to get two crops in a season. And that's important when we look at time trends, uh, for example, of, of production. In some environments, kilos per hectare give you um, a proper answer. In some cases like that, uh, you get a bias view of, of progress. This process of intensification is widespread. In dry environments like South Eastern Australia, wheat fallow was a feature of that system for a long time, and it's moving to continuous uh, cropping. That involves a trade-off. The, the, the wheat after fallow yields more than the wheat after wheat, but you have two crops per year instead of uh, half a crop per year. In some environments like the Pampas, uh, more uh, favorable environments in terms of soil and rainfall. Continuous cropping was established uh, decades ago, and now the push is to have more than one crop per year. So that's, those are the two systems we will um, develop a little bit more in the rest of the paper. So we've seen Dennis Igli's uh, um, account of the trade-off between uh, producing a very good soybean crop or feeding two crops in a season. Let's have a look at that system in, in a bit more detail from the viewpoint of uh, resources. <clears throat> the thin line here represents the availability of light for photosynthesis. The bars represent rainfall and the thick line, the capture of light by a good wheat crop. What you can see is um, most of the year, all that radiation is being lost. Water, to some extent, is stored in the soil, but there are losses, soil evaporation, and there is a risk of deep drainage and runoff, which are not only unproductive, but undesirable from the viewpoint of the environment. And there's not a lot that we can do to improve that wheat crop. But if we grow soybean after wheat, we are increasing dramatically the capacity of the system to capture radiation and water as well with a twofold benefit from the uh, viewpoint of production and the environment. Let's have a look at the economy of water in these cropping systems. The, the bars represent the water used by the crop and we have the soybean and wheat individual crops and the double crop. You can see how much water is captured with the double crop and the red points represent the proportion of the annual rainfall capture in the different systems. So you're going from 30 or 40 percent of annual rainfall capture by single crop to 60 or 70 when you have the, the two crops in, in a sequence. Production benefits, that's the yield of wheat relative to a single wheat crop. The value is one. It doesn't matter what you do after wheat. Uh, it won't have an effect. But growing soybean after wheat reduces the yield 
up to 40% relative to a good timely sown soybean crop. But the productivity of the system when the two crops is 60% greater than the productivity of the system which has one crop. On top of this, there is a dilution of fixed costs. So the, the profit of the system is much, much greater than the profit of a less intensive cropping system. The double crop also returns a much greater uh, amount of carbon and, uh, in the form of stubble to the soil. So that the bottom row is uh, 11 to 14 tons of stubble returned to the soil in, in double cropping. The reason why the weak point of this system is the soybean that yields less than a, a normal uh, soybean crop is um, two, two factors. One is we grow in the soybean in a dry soil after wheat, and we're delaying the sowing time to accommodate the wheat crop into a less favorable condition. Um, here we analyze the effects of realized warming over the few um, over over the last three decades. So we model the the, the 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 harvest time of wheat. So temperature is going up, and wheat is uh, is harvested early. So that's the rate of change in temperature over that 30 years period. That's the rate of change in harvest. So we have in early harvest. And we have an increase in soybean yield of 25 kilos per hectare per year associated with warming. So you see, in, it's not only in extreme environments at high latitudes where um, warming is, is in, increasing productivity because of a wider window, but it's also here at these environments. These are 37 degrees latitude. To finish this section, I, I would like to bring this example of innovation. Um, in that um, um, part of the world, in South America, there was a group of farmers who challenged the view that you need to own land and you need to own machinery to, to grow crops. So they went out very aggressively and started to lease land, outsource farm operations, and from day one they recruited the best minds uh, in terms of science and technology to this company. So it's, it's common to see a, a very fluid interaction between universities and PhDs that go into biotech or IT companies. That's the case in, 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 uh, in agriculture. The two, these two fellows there, they, they wrote the description of these systems. They do both have PhDs and they work for this company. Um, I will only show one aspect of this uh, innovation. In, in rainfed agriculture, risk management is critical. You might have dry seasons that um, are, are obviously uh, reducing productivity and, and, and increasing the, the financial risk. And growers do have a number of tools to manage risk. In this case, these uh, people are managing risk at the continental scale. This table down here represents the correlation between the yield in three locations that covered a, a transect between 37 and 27 degrees latitude from southern Buenos Aires to the um, subtropical regions. And all you need to see here is that there are some numbers that are negative. The negative correlation means that if soybean did have a bad season in the south, it would be buffered because in the north the season would be good. That's what the negative correlation is saying. So what they can manage now is 
the, the, the unit for risk manage is, management is not the farm, it's a region. So that's a huge innovation, I think. So let's move to the yield uh, at the crop level now. Um, this is a typical depiction of yield against water use with a boundary function that represents a rough attainable limit for, for production for a given amount of water and the scatter represents um, inefficiencies. There are different sources, so if, if a crop could produce um, a certain amount of, of uh, yield but is producing less with that amount of water, we ask the question, what's the source of the gap? Can we do something about that? I'll narrow now the, the analysis of that gap to these environments of southeastern Australia, where we do have <coughs> um, good evidence that a good part of that gap is nitrogen deficiency for two reasons. The, the soils are very poor and growers don't use much nitrogen because of the risk involved in a, in a low rainfall environment. To illustrate that, let's see this. Um, this scatter plot, the, the black points are the actual yields of, uh, of crops in, in real farms, and the green points are the, the model yields as under the assumption of low nitrogen. So we reproduce that sort of scatter. When we model the system with high nitrogen, a lot of that gap is removed. So it's a, a good part of, the, of, the, of that gap is nitrogen. So why don't growers use more nitrogen? If they know it, it, it's risk. Mm -hmm. That's one of the, of the paradoxes in this system. Very, very dry system, but at the end of the season, we have uh, water left in the soil in, if the, there wasn't enough nitrogen to capture that water. We're looking at this water nitrogen equation from two perspectives. One is starting with the idea that natural selection favors co-limitation. When we use that to this system, we can demonstrate that the high degree of water and nitrogen co-limitation favors with yield in these environments. We show that for southeastern Australia and there is um, independent studies in Spain showing the same thing. The second angle to look at this water nitrogen um, interaction is to focus on the uh, efficiencies. So a crop that's uh, nitrogen deficient will have a low water use efficiency for two reasons. One is the biomass produced per unit uh, transpiration is good below. That's very consistent irrespective of crop species, irrespective of climate, soil, and anything. That's a, it's hardwired in the biology of the crop. The, the plant needs nitrogen to have a high biomass per unit transpiration. And the second source of inefficiency in a nitrogen deficient crop is a high water loss through evaporation. That's also pretty common and, and robust. The bottom line is with nitrogen deficiency, the water efficiency of the crop is low. But each unit of nitrogen we add to get to a high water efficiency means a lower return in terms of yield for, for that uh, additional nitrogen. So the two mean that there is a trade-off between the efficiency of the two resources. There's a nitrogen-driven trade-off. 
You need nitrogen to have a high water sufficiency, but your nitrogen use efficiency will drop. This is hard wire in the crops, it's universal, except for legumes, doesn't matter the species, whether it's rainfed or, or, rain or irrigated, doesn't matter the soil, the climate, this will happen, all right? So in, in any system, you'll have this. There's a poster here showing this in, in experiment here in Nebraska. So that's an example of corn, an example of rice in the Philippines, and an example of wheat in Australia. So with this in mind, we went back to our uh, gap analysis. So growers can achieve, for example, in this environment, 20 kilos of grain per hectare for each millimeter of water. They know that, and that's a benchmark they use. But to achieve that, they need an amount of nitrogen that's completely out of question. 250 units of nitrogen will send the grower broke in, in five years because of the risk. So where are the growers operating? They're operating in that band of probably 10, 15 kilos of uh, grain per hectare per millimeter. And when you look at that, it makes a lot of sense. What they're doing is sacrificing water efficiency, but achieving the maximum return for the, the dollar invested in nitrogen. So that's the observation. There is a gap between the actual yield and the yield that could be attained per unit water use. When we look at that, and we've been looking at that with a strong emphasis on water, our interpretation has been, well, growers are inefficient. They could be much better, but they are not. So there's an opportunity to increase yield and water efficiency. When we look at the, this now from the dual perspective of water and nitrogen, our interpretation has changed. What we are thinking now is, well, growers are, be, are being very sensible. They found a, a good solution to this, to this trade-off in these conditions. And, 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 and um, this water nutrition trade-off, I think it's very important, not only here, but from with what we've seen in, in, in uh, countries where there is a chronic deficit of nutrients in much part of Africa, that's, um, that's critical as well. So I, I would start to conclude. I started with a broad view of uh, agriculture and sustainability and then narrow down. I will present some narrow conclusions and I will leave um, the conference with, the, with a wide or broad question. Grain productions can, can be improved by new ways to arrange crops in space and time. And this is probably the, 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 the area where the, the greatest gains are to be made. We can improve the yield of an individual crop, 5-10%, that would be a, a, a large increase. But when we rearrange the system, when we think of the, the, the organization of crops in space and time with, with um, with new, with new views, the gains uh, are much greater. You can shift by 20, 40% uh, the production of a system, thinking at that level. Crop production depends on a number of resources. Some of them can be stores, others can't. There are also non-resource drivers, importantly temperature. And, and the, the final point, Focusing on a single resources give us a biased view of the system. We show how we shift the interpretation of, of the yield gap from thinking just on water to thinking of water and nitrogen. So food, water, and energy, that's the theme of this conference. There are pressing questions there. 
what I would like to ask is whether we're looking at the symptoms of something else. And um, I go back to, I couldn't help but to think again, Jim Barra was thinking of climate change 50 years ago. Before dying, he wasn't concerned with the environment anymore. He was concerned with these aspects of our industrialized societies that are not quite right. Thank you. Are there any, any questions that someone would like to ask? Anyone would like to ask a question? We would have a few minutes. Jim? Ah, excuse me. They'll, they'll catch up to you. Shifted off. No, there it is. Okay. Uh, Jim Speck, University of Nebraska Agronomy Department, and uh, I've been familiar with your work since your 2006 classic paper <laughs> about uh, water productivity boundaries. But I think in your recent research, you're discovering, of course, that it's a co limitation with nitrogen. So if you go back and look at the things we may be missing in sub Saharan Africa, is the fact that we need nitrogen as well as better varieties. Just developing nitrogen use efficient varieties just allows them to mine the soil even more without really bringing production up. So a solution in Africa, in my opinion, would be that we need to provide not only seed but nitrogen as well in order to move the current water productivity of off to this side closer to your water boundary line. Yes, I, I, I fully agree with that, and, and there are people with a lot of experience working in, in Africa, and, and it's clear that's, that's the same paradox. You have an environment that's very dry, and the idea is because it's so dry, water is limiting, but there's a range of rainfall, and when rainfall is a bit over average, it's just wasted because there's no nutrients to capture that light. So it's, and, and the proposition of being more efficient. There's a limit given by the conservation of mass. So you need a certain crop and you need an input of, of nutrients. It's yeah, fully over here. Hello, Michael Daugert with NetFM. Um, is there any, or can you anticipate any effect of how and when you apply nitrogen at, you know, on, on this relationship. In other words, if, if you were able to pr provide nitrogen continuously throughout the crop in small amounts with the water supply, would that might affect your relationship as opposed to applying it according to standard practices and then irrigating, you know, a, you know on a daily or weekly basis, however you irrigate? Yes, in, in an irrigated situation where you manage water, Nitrogen is not an issue because you can match the two. The, the problem here in rain-fed agriculture is that growers do not, it's not only rain-fed, but it's winter rain-fed. It means the soil starts pretty much empty. So the growers fully rely on this, the, the growing season rain. And they've been burned 
Uh, the ones that have been burned are out of business. The ones that survive, we heard before about the, the, the need to be uh, conservative. And they're conservative not because of anything in their genus, their nature. That's how they survive. And, um, and, um, and the best way to manage nitrogen is, in these conditions, it's to hold back on nitrogen. The, in, in Australia and other and Mediterranean countries, what they do doing is splitting the application of nitrogen. So they go up to Tillery, for example, and they might have a bit better view of what the season is, is unfold, how it's unfolding, but the, the risk remains. Ken Kassman, University of Nebraska. And so there's been some discussion about diversity and concern for simplification of agriculture with modern technologies. And you show this marvelous example of adding another crop to a system in Argentina where it was wheat, now it's wheat and soybean. Then you showed that if you take a continental approach, it actually adds to stability of the system when a farmer can have 500,000 hectares across 27 to 37 degrees north-south latitude. But my question is, what about the individual farmer? When you add that soybean crop to the rotation, um, one might think that it uses more of the water so the system is more vulnerable to, to massive year-to-year -year variations due to rainfall. So could you address that, the benefits of stability when you take the continental approach from intensification with regard to water versus what the, the individual farmer sees when they intensify? I think, I think the, what growers do in this type of things, where, where they are challenged, they, they grow in, uh, in, in this example of, of Argentina, they, they not only don't have subsidies, but they have a 25% tax on their grain. So they have to be very switched on to get the most uh, of, of what the environment can do. And, and in that gradient, what you say is right. So they can grow wheat, soybean, double cropped, in, in the environment where you have 900 uh, millimeters of rainfall and some reliability, and that fails with the frequency of years, but they cannot do that in, in, the, in the environment where they have 500 of 600 millimeters of rain. So they, they, it's, um, the, the spread of the, the, the different strategies is under the boundaries of essentially the rainfall. And to a lesser extent, the soil, soil uh, water holding capacity. Last question. Thanks. Uh, John Gates, UNL. Um, based on your comment about um, seeing uh, progress in the future through innovative combinations and rotations of, of crops, I'm wondering what your viewpoint is on agroforestry, uh, especially for small-scale uh, dryland agriculture, whereby the, uh, the, the coexistence of uh, trees with tap roots can provide benefits in terms of uh, both water and nitrogen to, um, say, cereal crops. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I cannot comment on that. I don't have experience in that particular combination of crops. Yeah. Why don't you join me in thanking Victor for a very interesting presentation.